May I talk to you today about the really big things of Christianity, the important things. They're all summed up in one section of each of the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. What are these big things? The Christ, the Church, the Cross, the Coming. They are all discussed in the last part of Matthew 16 and the first part of Matthew 17 and the parallel passages in Mark and Luke. Let me tell you the setting. Jesus took his disciples for a three-month holiday. They left Palestine behind and went up to the borders of Caesarea Philippi, the region in the north, far removed from the chosen people. Jesus wanted to concentrate on his own and train them to be the leaders in the great work of the gospel. And so for a time he leaves the Israelites and just focuses on the little company who are to be the pioneers of the Christian church. And to them he gives instruction on the really big issues of Christianity. My friends, if a group forgets these and majors in minors, it is in danger of becoming unchristian. The real test of a professed Christian church is whether it makes big what God makes big. It is folly to make a world of an atom and an atom of a world. And in this passage we'll find what are the really significant factors, features, subjects, themes of the gospel. So let me read to you from Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13 forward. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonas, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. And from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Well, let's stop at that bit and consider it for a start. Did you notice what the question was, what the issue was? The question was not who do men say that you, Peter, are. A great deal has been made of this passage of scripture in connection with Peter, that great man whom God used to open the church to Jews and to Gentiles. Remember Acts 1 and Acts 10 tell how both Jews and Gentiles were invited into the church by Peter. Every time the apostles are listed, Peter's always put first and Judas is always put last. So Peter is a very prominent figure in the Christian church. But sometimes more has been claimed for him than the scriptures really suggest to be true. And the issue in this situation is not who do men say that you are, Peter, but who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And then there were various answers, and Peter gave the right answer. 
Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when he gave that answer, Jesus proclaimed that he was blessed, and that he hadn't worked it out by his own intelligence, but that God had revealed it to him. And then he said, Peter, your name means a stone or a rock, and this truth that you've uttered, that's a rock foundation into which you and the other disciples are built upon me, the cornerstone, to rear up a temple of the Christian church. So we are to observe that the very foundation of the Christian church is the truth about Christ. If Christ is a mere man, my friends, then Christianity is only a philosophy. If Christ is only a man, he was but a martyr on the cross and not a saviour. He cannot forgive our sins if he was a sinner too, like you and me. So the very first truth in Christianity is that Christ is the spotless Son of God, the divine Saviour. You remember that ladder which Jacob saw extending from heaven to earth? Jesus is that ladder. We're told that in John chapter 1. By his divinity, he reaches the heavens. By his humanity, he touches us on earth. And if we break the ladder at either end, we have no Saviour. We have no connection with heaven. The heavens remain silent and empty and earth will be but a grave. So please note, the very first truth of Christianity is that Christ is the divine one, the spotless Son of God. Unless we're clear on the nature of Christ, we'll not be clear on anything else, my friends. Christ claimed the power to forgive sins. He claimed to be the judge of all the earth. He said before Abraham was, I am. He put himself on an equality with the Father. He said that my Father and I are one. And in the Great Commission, he told the disciples to baptize believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Christ claims a oneness with God. Who else could say, come unto me, and I will give you rest? What folly for anyone else to say that. Who else could claim to give his life as a redemption, a ransom for all the world? Who else could say that he came to give his life as a ransom for many? Only Jesus. So that's the beginning, my friends. A true Christian church is a church that's clear on the nature of Christ, that sees him as the spotless sacrifice, the creator of all things, and the Redeemer of the world. Would you notice that having said all this, Jesus then began to talk to them about the cross. Now this is very strange. We would have thought that once it was confessed that he was the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that he was God, we would have thought that Jesus would have said, yes, and let us roll out the red carpet and tell the trumpeters to play, strike up the orchestra, but instead, it says, from that time forth, he began to show unto his disciples he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and be raised again the third day. My friends, the cross, the cross, that is vital. The church is built upon Christ, but it's the Christ of the cross. Any church that uses Christ just as an example or just as a pattern for living or just as a philosopher or a teacher, is not a Christian church. Central to the Christian church is the fact that Christ went to Jerusalem to suffer, to be killed, 
If we take away the atonement, there's nothing left, my friend. That's the only lever that can lift the world to God. That's the magnetic attraction that draws men and women out of the maelstrom of sin. The cross. The cross that revealed the love of God in a way nothing else could. So, we have seen three C's so far. The Christ, the Church, the cross. We have not said much about the Church as yet. But we are saying what it must teach and believe. The nature of Christ and the fact of his death on the cross. Well, look look at the response. It says in the 22nd verse, Peter took him, began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this will not be unto thee. Notice the cross is never welcome. Men don't like to be told, first of all, of a saviour that had to die for their sins. It takes a while for the hard crust to be broken, the conscience to be stirred, and the tears to fall. Peter rebuked his Lord, far from thee, Lord. Had Peter had his way, there'd have been no cross. And there'd have been no crown. There'd have been no everlasting life. There has to be a cross before the crown. There has to be the torn body before the glorified body. Good Friday before Easter Sunday. Human nature is a poor thing. And the church is composed of poor human beings like Peter. The church is not an art gallery for the exhibition of perfect Christians. It's a hospital for sick people. Don't expect perfection, my friends, in the church that you attend. If you did find a perfect church, it would no longer be one once you joined it. A church is a place where people acknowledge how far from perfect they are, but who desire to be better by the grace of God, through the mercy of God, by adoring one who himself is all perfect. Jesus went on to say that there's a cross for us as well. He said unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So the cross is not just something of the past. By that we were saved. But there are two ways of looking at the cross. When we first see it, we see that Christ died for us. But when we see it the second time with insight, we realise we were crucified with him. And we are to live the crucified life. When our will clashes with God's will, we are to crucify it by seeing the love of God on Calvary and choosing God's way, however much it hurts at first. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. The old Greeks thought it was wonderful to know oneself. Know thyself was their counsel. Know thyself. Others thought it was wonderful to learn to control themselves. Control thyself was another Greek dictum. But Jesus says that a man deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We deny ourselves wherever our wishes clash with the will of God, with the law of God, the truth of God. And if we forget that that's the only way to life, then, my friends, we forget all. For whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake, said Jesus, shall find it. For what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own life? 
Then at the end of the chapter, Jesus talks about the coming. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here that shall not taste of death, till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus here speaks of what could have been had the early Christian church folded the gospel to its bosom and in wild contagion of joy and ecstasy continued to spread it to the pagan world. Sadly, the fire died out and the coming of Christ has been delayed for the gospel has not yet gone to all the world. But Jesus did fulfill his promise because six days later he showed his disciples a miniature of the second coming. Let me read you the account that follows. And in Matthew, Mark and Luke, this account always follows the events of Caesarea Philippi. I want to read to you about the Transfiguration, which was a miniature of the Second Advent, fulfilling the promise of Christ. And after six days, Jesus takes Peter and James and John, his brother, and brings them up into a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his clothing was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man, till the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Well, that's the account of the transfiguration. And I would like to read to you as I turn in the Bible. The second Peter, I would like to read you what Peter said about that event, because he was there. I'm reading from Second Peter, chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made unto, known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honour and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Notice that Peter says that they've actually seen the coming of Christ. And he refers to the transfiguration scene which was a miniature of the second coming. You notice that Jesus was in glory there. And with him Moses and Elijah. Moses had to be resurrected after death. We're told that in the book of Jude. Elijah was translated without seeing death. And Moses and Elijah represent the two companies associated with the second coming of Jesus. The saints raised from the grave, the great majority, and the living righteous who will be translated like Elijah. So Jesus in glory, with a resurrected one, Moses, and a translated one, Elijah, prefigured the scene of the second coming with the resurrection of the dead saints and the translation of the living saints. There are about a dozen parallels between the Transfiguration and the Second Coming. Let me remind you of them. We're told in the first verse here, they went up to a high mountain apart. Well, when Jesus comes again, he comes in the clouds from the heights. The high mountain 
points to the fact that Jesus will come from the heavens. In the second verse, it says that Jesus was transfigured. And we're told in Luke 21 and verse 27 that when Jesus comes again, he'll come in great glory. He'll be transfigured. The third parallel is that Matthew 17.5 says there was a bright cloud overshadowing. We're told in Matthew 24 that Christ comes in the clouds of heaven. He comes in the glory of his Father. The clouds are a symbol of that glory. The fourth parallel is we read in Matthew 17 that the voice of God was heard. A voice out of the cloud which said, this is my beloved son. In Revelation 16 and verse 17, we read that associated with the second coming, there'll be a great voice come out of the heavenly temple. The fifth parallel is that Luke 9.32, telling us about the transfiguration, speaks about Christ's own personal glory. The second advent scene in Matthew 25.31 pictures Christ coming in his glory. The sixth parallel is the presence of Moses. First Thessalonians 4.16 says the dead in Christ shall rise, just like Moses. The seventh parallel is the presence of Elijah. And as we said before, he represents those who will be translated at the second coming. And they were both in glory, it says in Luke 9.30 and 31. And both the dead and the living saints will be glorified at the second advent. The ninth parallel is we read that Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus. We too will commune with our Lord Jesus when he returns. That's what heaven will be, walking and talking with Jesus. Matthew 17 gives us the words of Peter, how, how he said, it, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Isaiah 25 and verse 9 tells us what a goodly land heaven will be for the saved. As Peter said on the Mount of Transfiguration, Lord, it is good for us to be here. That's what we'll be saying in the kingdom of God. Saviour, it's good for us to be here. Thank you for bringing us here. Matthew 17 and verse 9 says, The whole event of the transfiguration was a vision. Tell the vision to no man, said Jesus. But the second advent will be a reality, not just a vision. In Acts 1 and verses 9 to 11, we read what the angels told the disciples after Jesus ascended. When he had spoken these things, we read, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye up gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go. That, my friends, will be a reality. And the last parallel between the transfiguration and the second advent has to do with telling. In Matthew 17 and verse 9, Jesus said, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. But in Matthew 24, 14, we're told that when this gospel is told to all the world for witness unto all nations, then shall the end come. Now let me notice with you something even more important. It says in verse 6 that when the disciples heard the voice of God, they fell on their face. What had they heard? They'd heard the words, This is my beloved Son, 
in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. There was Elijah, there was Moses, but God said, This, meaning Jesus, is my beloved son. Moses and Elijah were servants, but Jesus is a son. And we read in verse 7 that Jesus came near to them. My friends, God the Son came so near to us that he was born as we were born and died as surely as we must die. He came nigh by putting on humanity. Then verse 7 says he touched them. Our Lord Jesus has touched us by his life and death and given us life. But not only so, verse 7 says that Jesus spoke and we have the word of Christ today. There are no words like the words of Jesus. They are self-authenticating. One doesn't really need to argue about whether the words of Christ are inspired. That heart that is surrendered to God, that desires to know his will, finds the words of Christ are self-authenticating. They guarantee themselves. And so here's a Jesus who came near, who's touched us and who's spoken to us. And then it says, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Now, my friends, think of the possibilities. After the voice of God, they could have seen Jesus and Moses and Elijah and walked down the mountain with the three of them. How would you like to be in company with Moses? He was a great man. But my friends, Moses represents the law. And if the law dominates our life, life will not be comfortable at any time. What about Elijah, walking with Elijah? Well, Elijah represents the prophets and they were fiery people. You remember when people came to take Elijah, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Elijah was a fiery prophet and I'm not sure I'd be comfortable with Elijah. It could have been that uh, we'd only walk down with Moses and Elijah on their own or with Moses and Jesus, or Elijah and Jesus, or the three of them. But I'm glad the text tells us they saw Jesus only, and they walked down the mountain with Jesus only. You see, my friends, we are only meant to see the law and the prophets in Jesus. We do wrong if we put either of them above our Lord. Jesus. See all in him. See the law in Jesus. It tells us about him. That law was placed in the ark. And that law was put in the heart of Jesus. He was the living law, but law and love combining. Never see the law apart from Christ. Never read the commandments of God in big letters and the promises in little type. Never read the law apart from him, or you'll be gloomy and discouraged and depressed. Moses could only take the Israelites to the borders of Canaan. It took Joshua to take them through. And Joshua means Jesus. It's the Hebrew form of Jesus. Whenever people tell others their duty without telling them also of the love of God, then they're presenting Moses without Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 3, we read about the law being a ministration of death. Whenever standards are upheld, all the do's and the don'ts, unless the mercy of God and the grace of God, the goodness of Christ is also elevated, we have Moses without Jesus. And there's no life in that, my friends. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Law and gospel must both be kept together. 
distinct but never separate. We're saved by the gospel. That's why we must keep them distinct. But the fruitage of salvation is obedience to law. That's why we must not separate the two. Keep law and gospel distinct but not separate. And Elijah, my friends, many people read the prophecies of the Bible and leave Jesus out. Many people read the prophecies and they say much about the Jews going back to Jerusalem and building a temple and starting the sacrificial system going again and and an antichrist appearing over there in Palestine. My friends, we need to very carefully inquire whether this is the right way to read the prophecies or whether we should be reading them in Jesus. A true Israelite is someone that believes in Jesus. The true circumcision is that of the heart and not of the flesh. If ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed. There's not one word in the whole New Testament about the Jews returning to Palestine, my friends. That is a tradition in the Christian church, which is not scriptural. It has been inaugurated by seeing the prophets without Jesus. All the Old Testament prophecies about the return of Israel are fulfilled in Christ. In Christ, we are all gathered together into the promised land. In Christ, we inherit all the promises made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. So, do not separate the law from Jesus and do not separate the prophecies from Jesus. And as you walk today and tomorrow and the day following, resolve to keep your eyes on Jesus only. My friends, don't be downcast by those in the home or those in the church, or those of your neighbours that are negative, unkind, critical, resolve to look at Jesus only, because you will become like whatever gets your attention. Whatever gets your attention, gets you. My friend, today we have looked at the essentials in the proclamation of the Christian church, the Christ, the church, the cross, the coming. But all of these gain their value from the first the Christ. He is all and in all. He is our salvation. He is our life. He is our righteousness. My brother, my sister, will you not with me seek his help to live by Jesus only?